Chapter eighteen of East Lynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Fricker. East Lynn by Mrs. Henry Wood. Chapter eighteen. Miss Carlyle. Isabel unhappy. Another year came in. Isabel would have been altogether happy but for Miss Carlyle. That lady still inflicted her presence upon East Lynne, and made it the bane of its household. She deferred outwardly to Lady Isabel as the mistress, but the real mistress was herself. Isabel was little more than an automaton. Her impulses were checked, her wishes frustrated, her actions tacitly condemned by the imperiously willed Miss Carlyle. Poor Isabel, with her refined manners and her timid and sensitive temperament, had no chance against the strong-minded woman, and she was in a state of galling subjection in her own house. Not a day passed but Miss Carlyle, by dint of hints and innuendos, contrived to impress upon Lady Isabel the unfortunate blow to his own interests that Mr. Carlyle's marriage had been, the ruinous expense she had entailed upon the family. It struck a complete chill to Isabel's heart, and she became painfully impressed with the incubus she must be to Miss Carlyle, so far as his pocket was concerned. Lord Mount Seven, with his little son, had paid them a short visit at Christmas, and Isabel had asked him, apparently with unconcern, whether Mr. Carlyle had put himself very much out of the way to marry her whether it had entailed on him an expense and a style of living he would not otherwise have deemed himself justified in affording lord mount seven's reply was an unfortunate one his opinion was that it had he said and that isabel ought to feel grateful to him for his generosity she sighed as she listened and from thenceforth determined to put up with miss carlyle more timid and sensitive by nature than many would believe or can imagine, reared in seclusion more simply and quietly than falls to the general lot of peers' daughters, completely inexperienced, Isabel was unfit to battle with the worldly, totally unfit to battle with Miss Carlyle. The penniless state in which she was left at her father's death, the want of a home save that accorded her at Castle Marling, even the hundred-pound note left in her hand by Mr. Carlyle, all that had imbued her with a deep consciousness of humiliation, and, far from rebelling at or despising the small establishment, comparatively speaking, provided for her by Mr. Carlyle, she felt thankful to him for it. But to be told continuously that this was more than he could afford, that she was in fact a blight upon his prospects, was enough to turn her heart to bitterness. Oh, that she had had the courage to speak out openly to her husband! that he might say by a single word of earnest love and assurance, have taken the weight from her heart, and rejoiced it with the truth, that all these miserable complaints were but the phantoms of his narrow-minded sister. But Isabel never did. When Miss Corney lapsed into her grumbling mood, she would hear in silence, or generally bend her aching forehead in her hands, never retorting. Never before Mr. Carlyle was the lady's temper vented upon her. Plenty fell to his own share when he and his sister were alone, and he had become so accustomed to the sort of thing all his life, he had got used to it, like the eels do to skinning, that it went, as the saying runs, in at one ear and out at the other, making no impression. 
He never dreamt that Isabel also received her portion. It was morning early in April. Joyce sat in its grey dawn, over a large fire in the dressing-room of Lady Isabel Carlyle, her hands clasped to pain, and the tears coursing down her cheeks. Joyce was frightened. She had had some experience in illness, but illness of this nature she had never witnessed, and she was fervently hoping never to witness it again. In the adjoining room lay Lady Isabel, sick nearly unto death. The door from the corridor slowly opened, and Miss Carlyle slowly entered. She had probably never walked with so gentle a step in all her life, and she had got a thick wadded mantle over her head and ears. Down she sat in a chair quite meekly, and Joyce saw that her face looked as grey as the early dawn. Joyce, whispered she, is there any danger? Oh, ma'am, I trust not, but it's hard to witness, and it must be awful to bear. It's our common curse, Joyce. You and I may congratulate ourselves that we had not chose to encounter it, Joyce. She added, after a pause, I trust there's no danger. I should not like her to die. Miss Carlyle spoke in a low, dread tone. Was she fearing that if her poor young sister-in-law did die, a weight would rest on her own conscience for all that time, a heavy, ever-present weight whispering that she might have rendered her short year of marriage more happy, had she chosen, and that she had not so chosen, but had deliberately steeled every crevice of her heart against her? Very probably. She looked anxious and apprehensive in the morning's twilight. "'If there's any danger, Joyce—' "'Why do you think there's danger, ma'am?' interrupted Joyce. "'Are other people not as ill as this?' "'It is to be hoped they are not,' rejoined Miss Carlyle. "'And why has the express gone to Lynborough for Dr. Martin?' Up started Joyce, awestruck. "'An express for Dr. Martin? Oh, ma'am, who sent it? When did it go?' All I know is that it's gone. Mr. Wainwright went to your master, and he came out of his room and sent John galloping to the telegraph office at West Lynn. Where could your ears have been? Not to hear the horse tearing off. I heard it. I know that. And a nice fright it put me in. I went to Mr. Carlyle's room to ask what was amiss, and he said he did not know himself. Nothing he hoped and then he shut his door again in my face instead of stopping to speak to me as any other Christian would. Joyce did not answer. She was faint with apprehension, and there was a silence broken only by the sounds from the next room. Miss Carlyle rose, and a fanciful person might have thought she was shivering. I can't stand this, Joyce. I shall go. If they want coffee or anything of that, it can be sent here. Ask. I will presently in a few minutes, answered Joyce with a real shiver. You are not going in, are you, ma'am? She uttered in apprehension as Miss Carlyle began to steal on tiptoe to the inner door, and Joyce had a lively consciousness that her sight would not be an agreeable one to Lady Isabel. They want the room free. They sent me out. Not I, answered Miss Corney. I could do no good, and those who cannot are better away. Just what Mr. Rainwright said when he dismissed me, murmured Joyce, and Miss Carlyle finally passed into the corridor and withdrew. Joyce sat on, it seemed to her, an interminable time, and then she heard the arrival of Dr. Martin, heard him go into the next room. 
by and by mr wainwright came out of it into the room where joyce was sitting her tongue clove to the roof of her mouth and before she could bring out the ominous words is there any danger he had passed through it mr wainwright was on his way to the apartment where he expected to find mr carlyle the latter was pacing it he had so paced it all the night his pale face flushed as the surgeon entered you have little mercy on my suspense wainwright dr martin has been here this twenty minutes what does he say well he cannot say any more than i did the symptoms are critical but he hopes she will do well there is nothing for it but patience mr carlyle resumed his weary walk i come now to suggest that you should send for little in these protracted cases the speech was interrupted by a cry from mr carlyle half horror half despair for the reverend mr little was the incumbent of st jude's and his apprehensions had flown he hardly knew to what they had flown not for your wife hastily rejoined the surgeon what good should a clergyman do to her i spoke of the score of the child should it not live it may be satisfactory to you and lady isabel to know that it was baptized i thank you i thank you said mr carlyle grasping his hand in his inexpressible relief little shall be sent for you jump to the conclusion that your wife's soul was flitting please god she may yet live to bear you other children if this one does die please god was the inward aspiration of mr carlyle carlyle added the surgeon in a musing sort of tone as he laid his hand on mr carlyle's shoulder which his own head scarcely reached i am sometimes at deathbeds where the clergyman is sent for in this desperate need to the fleeting spirit and i am tempted to ask myself what good another man priest though he be can do at the twelfth hour where accounts have not been made up previously it was hard upon midday the reverend mr little mr carlyle and miss carlyle were gathered in the dressing-room round a table on which stood a rich china bowl containing water for the baptism joyce her pale face working with emotion came into the room carrying what looked like a bundle of flannel little cared mr carlyle for the bundle in comparison with his care for his wife joyce he whispered is it well still i believe so sir the services commenced the clergyman took the child what name he asked mr carlyle had never thought about the name but he replied very promptly william for he knew it was a name revered and loved by lady isabel the minister dipped his fingers in the water joyce interrupted in much confusion looking at her master it is a little girl sir i beg your pardon i am sure i thought i had said so but i am so flurried as i never was before there was a pause and then the minister spoke again name the child isabel lucy said mr carlyle upon which a strange sort of resentful sniff was heard from miss corney she had probably thought to hear him mention her own but he had named it after his wife and his mother mr carlyle was not allowed to see his wife until evening his eyelashes glistened as he looked down at her 
she detected his emotions and a faint smile parted her lips i fear i bore it badly archibald but let us be thankful that it is over how thankful none can know save those who have gone through it i think they can he murmured i never knew what thankfulness was until this day that the baby is safe that you are safe my darling safe and spared to me isabel he whispered hiding his face upon hers i never until this day knew what prayer was the prayer of a heart in its sore need have you written to lord mount seven she asked after a while this afternoon he replied why did you give baby my name isabel do you think i could have given it a prettier one i don't why do you not bring a chair and sit down by me he smiled and shook his head i wish i might but they limited my stay with you to four minutes and wainwright has posted himself outside the door with his watch in his hand quite true there stood the careful surgeon and the short interview was over almost as soon as it had begun the baby lived and appeared likely to live and of course the next thing was to look out for a maid for it isabel did not get strong very quickly fever and weakness had a struggle with each other and with her one day when she was dressing and sitting in her easy chair miss carlyle entered of all the servants in the neighbourhood who should you suppose is come up after the place of nurse indeed i cannot guess why wilson mrs hare's maid three years and five months she has been with them and now leaves in consequence of a fallout with barbara will you see her is she likely to suit is she a good servant she's not a bad servant as servants go responded miss carlyle she's steady and respectable but she has got a tongue as long as from here to lynborough that won't hurt the baby said lady isabel but if she has lived as a lady's maid she probably does not understand the care of infants yes she does she was upper servant at squire pinner's before going to mrs hare's five years she lived there i will see her said lady isabel miss carlyle left the room to send the servant in but came back first alone mind lady isabel don't you engage her if she is likely to suit you let her come again for the answer and meanwhile i will go down to mrs hare's and learn the ins and outs of her leaving it is all very plausible for her to put upon barbara but that is only one side of the question before engaging her it may be well to hear the other of course this was but right isabel acquiesced and the servant was introduced a tall pleasant-looking woman with black eyes lady isabel inquired why she was leaving mrs hare's my lady it is through miss barbara's temper latterly over oh, this year past nothing has pleased her she has grown nearly as imperious as the justice himself i have threatened many times to leave and last evening we came to another outbreak and i left this morning left entirely yes my lady miss barbara provoked me so that i said last night i would leave as soon as breakfast was over and i did so 
I should be very glad to take your situation, my lady, if you would please to try me. You have been the upper maid at Mrs. Hare's? Oh, yes, my lady. Then possibly this situation might not suit you so well as you imagine. Joyce is the upper servant here, and you would in a manner be under her. I have great confidence in Joyce, and in case of my illness or absence, Joyce would superintend the nursery. I should not mind that, was the applicant's answer. We all like Joyce, my lady. A few more questions, and then the girl was told to come again in the evening for her answer. Miss Carlyle went to the grove for the ins and outs of the affair, where Mrs. Hare frankly stated that she had nothing to urge against Wilson, save her hasty manner of leaving, and believed the chief blame to be due to Barbara. Wilson, therefore, was engaged, and was to enter upon her new service the following morning. In the afternoon succeeding to it, Isabel was lying on the sofa in her bedroom asleep, as was supposed. In point of fact, she was in that state, half asleep, half wakeful delirium, which those who suffer from weakness and fever know only too well. Suddenly she was aroused from it by hearing her own name mentioned in the adjoining room, where sat Joyce and Wilson, the latter holding the sleeping infant on her knee, the former sewing, the door between the rooms being ajar. "'How ill she does look,' observed Wilson. "'Who?' asked Joyce. "'Her ladyship. "'She looks just as if she'd never get over it.' "'She is getting over it quickly now,' returned Joyce. "'If you had seen her but a week ago, "'you would not say she was looking ill now, speaking in comparison.' "'My goodness! "'Would not somebody's hopes be up again if anything should happen?' nonsense crossly rejoined joyce you may cry out nonsense for ever joyce but they would went on wilson and she would snap him up to a dead certainty she never let him escape her a second time she is as much in love with him as she ever was it was all talk and fancy said joyce west lynne must be busy mr carlyle never cared for her there's more than you know I have seen a little Joyce. I have seen him kiss her. A pack of rubbish, remarked Joyce. That tells nothing. I don't say it does. There's not a young man living but what's fond of a sly kiss in the dark, if he can get it. He gave her that locket and chain she wears. Who wears? retorted Joyce, determined not graciously to countenance the subject. I don't want to hear anything about it. Who now? Why, Miss Barbara? She has hardly had it off her neck since. My belief is she wears it in her sleep. More simpleton she, returned Joyce. The night before he left West Lynne to marry Lady Isabel, and didn't the news come upon us like a thunderclap? Miss Barbara had been at Miss Carlyle's, and he brought her home. A lovely night it was, the moon rising, and nearly as light as day. He somehow broke her parasol in coming home, and when they got to her gate there was a love scene. Were you a third in it? sarcastically demanded Joyce. Yes, without meaning to be, 
it was a regular love scene i could hear enough for that if ever anybody thought to be mrs carlyle barbara did that night why you great baby you have just said it was the night before he went to get married i don't care she did after he was gone i saw her lift up her hands and her face in ecstasy and say he would never know how much she loved him until she was his wife be you very sure joyce many a love passages passed between them two but i suppose when my lady was thrown in his way he couldn't resist her rank and her beauty and the old love was cast over it is in the nature of man to be fickle especially those that can boast of their own good looks like mr carlyle mr carlyle's not fickle i can tell you more yet two or three days after that miss corney came up to her house with the news of his marriage i was in mistress's bedroom and they were in the room underneath the windows open and i heard miss corney tell the tale for i was leaning out up came miss barbara upon an excuse and flew into her room and i went into the corridor a few moments and i heard a noise it was a sort of wail or groan and i opened the door softly fearing she might be fainting joyce if my heart never ached for anybody before it ached then she was lying upon the floor her hands writhed together and her poor face all white like one in mortal agony i'd have given a quarter's wages to be able to say a word of comfort to her but i didn't dare interfere with such a sorrow as that i came out again and shut the door without her seeing me how thoroughly stupid she must have been uttered joyce to go caring for one who did not care for her i tell you joyce you don't know that he did not care you are as obstinate as the justice and i wish to goodness you wouldn't interrupt me they came up here to pay the wedding visit master mistress and she came in state in the grand chariot with the coachman and jasper if you have got any memory at all you can't fail to recollect it miss barbara remained behind at east lynne to spend the rest of the day i remember it i was sent to fetch her home in the evening jasper being out i came the field way for the dust by the road was enough to smother one and by the last style but one what do you think i came upon joyce lifted her eyes a snake perhaps i came upon miss barbara and mr carlyle what had passed nobody knows but themselves she was leaning back against the stile crying low soft sobs breaking from her like one might expect to hear from her breaking heart it seemed as if she had been reproaching him as if some explanation had passed and i heard him say that from henceforth they could only be brother and sister i spoke soon for fear they should see me and mr carlyle got over the stile miss barbara said to him that he need not come any further but he held out his arm and came with her to our back gate i went on then to open the door and i saw him with his head bent down to her and her two hands held in his we don't know how it is between them i tell you 
at any rate she is a downright fool to suffer herself to love him still uttered joyce indignantly so she is but she does do it she'll often steal out to the gate about the time she knows he'll be passing and watch him by not letting him see her it is nothing but her unhappiness her jealousy of lady isabel that makes her cross i assure you joyce in this past year she has so changed that she's not like the same person if mr carlyle should ever get tired of my lady and wilson harshly interrupted joyce have the goodness to recollect yourself what have i said not nothing but truth men are shamefully fickle husbands worse than sweethearts and i'm sure i'm not thinking of anything wrong but to go back to the argument that we began with i say that if anything happened to my lady miss barbara as sure as fate would step into her shoes nothing is going to happen to her continued joyce with composure i hope it is not now or later for the sake of this dear little innocent thing upon my lap went on the undaunted wilson she would not make a very kind stepmother for it is certain that where the first wife had been hated her children won't be loved she would turn mr carlyle against them i tell you what it is wilson interrupted joyce in a firm unmistakable tone if you think to pursue those sort of topics at east lynne i shall inform my lady that you are unsuitable for the situation i dare say and you know that when i make up my mind to a thing i do it continued joyce miss carlyle may well say you have the longest tongue in west lynne but you might have the grace to know that this subject is one more unsuitable to it than another whether you are eating mr hare's bread or whether you are eating mr carlyle's another word wilson it appears to me that you have been carrying on a prying system in mrs hare's house do not attempt such a thing in this you were always one of the straight-laced sort joyce cried wilson laughing good-humouredly but now that i have my say out i shall stop and you need not fear i shall be such a simpleton as to go prattling of this kind of thing to the servants now just fancy this conversation penetrating to lady isabel she heard every word it is all very well to oppose the argument who attends the gossip of servants let me tell you it depends upon what the subject matter may be whether the gossip is attended to or not it might not and indeed would not have made so great an impression upon her had she been in strong health but she was weak feverish and in a state of partial delirium and she hastily took up the idea that archibald carlyle had never loved her that he had admired her and made her his wife in his ambition but that his heart had been given to barbara hare a pretty state of excitement she worked herself into as she lay there jealousy and fever ay and love too playing pranks with her brain it was near the dinner hour when mr carlyle entered he was startled to see her her pallid cheeks were burning with a red hectic glow and her eyes glistened with fever isabel you are worse he uttered as he approached her with a quick step she partially rose from the sofa and clasped hold of him in her emotion oh 
Archibald, Archibald, she uttered, don't marry her. I could not rest in my grave. Mr. Carlyle, in his puzzled astonishment, believed her to be laboring under some temporary hallucination, the result of weakness. He set himself to soothe her, but it seemed that she could not be soothed. She burst into a storm of tears and began again wild words. She would ill-treat my child, she would draw your love from it and from my memory. Archibald, you must not marry her. You must be speaking from the influence of dream, Isabel, he soothingly said. You have been asleep and are not yet awake. Be still, and recollection will return to you. There, love, rest upon me. To think of her as your wife brings pain enough to kill me, she continued to reiterate. Promise me that you will not marry her. Archibald, promise it. I will promise you anything in reason, he replied, bewildered with her words. But I do not know what you mean. There is no possibility of me marrying anyone, Isabel. You are my wife. But if I die, I may, you know, I may, and many think I shall. Do not let her usurp my place. Indeed she shall not, whoever you may be talking of. What have you been dreaming? Who is it that has been troubling your mind? Archibald, do you need to ask? Did you love no one before you married me? Perhaps you have loved her since. Perhaps you love her still. Mr. Carlyle began to discern method in her madness. He changed his cheering tone to one of great earnestness. Of whom do you speak, Isabel? Of Barbara Hare. He knitted his brow. He was both annoyed and vexed. Whatever had put this bygone nonsense into his wife's head? He quitted the sofa where he had been supporting her, and stood upright before her, calm, dignified, almost solemn in his seriousness. Isabel, what notion can you possibly have picked up about myself and Barbara Hare? I never entertained the faintest shadow of love for her, either before my marriage or since. You must tell me what has given rise to this idea in your mind. But she loved you. A moment's hesitation, for, of course, Mr. Carlyle was conscious that she had, but, taking all the circumstances into consideration, more especially how he had learnt the fact, he could not in honour acknowledge it to his wife. If it was so, Isabel, she was more reprehensibly foolish than I should have given Barbara's good sense could be, for a woman may almost as well lose herself as to suffer herself to love unsought. If she did give her love to me, I can only say I was entirely unconscious of it. Believe me, you have as much cause to be jealous of Cornelia as you have of Barbara Hare. An impulse rose within her that she would tell him all the few words dropped by Susan and Joyce twelve months before the conversation she had just overheard, but in that moment of renewed confidence it did appear to her that she must have been very foolish to attach importance to it, that a sort of humiliation in listening to the converse of servants was reflected on her, and she remained silent. There never was a passion in this world, there never will be one, so fantastic, so delusive, so powerful as jealousy. Mr. Carlyle dismissed the episode from his thoughts. He believed his wife's emotion to have been simply from a feverish dream, and never supposed but that, 
with the dream its recollection would pass away from her not so implicitly relying upon her husband's words at the moment feeling quite ashamed at her own suspicion lady isabel afterwards suffered the unhappy fear to regain its influence the ill-starred revelations of wilson reasserted their power overmastering the denial of mr carlyle shakespeare calls jealousy yellow and green i think it may be called black and white for it most assuredly views white as black and black as white the most fanciful surmises wear the aspect of truth the great improbabilities appear as consistent realities not another word said isabel to her husband and the feeling you will understand this if you have ever been foolish enough to sun yourself in its delights only caused her to grow more attached to him to be more eager for his love but certain it is that barbara hare dwelt on her heart like an incubus end of chapter eighteen recording by john fricker